just started now. Sun is off. Alright, hello and welcome to the Not a Victim podcast. Not a Victim is a show about learning to live life without excuses. Today's guest is my longtime friend, Tim Collis. Um, yeah, so it's kind of weird to ask you this because I've known you a long time, but um, just go ahead and tell me everything about childhood and, and uh, adolescence and just uh, everything about your upbringing and the environment that that included. All right. Um, <laughs> 1968, way back. <laughs> I, years ago. I knew you were old, but I didn't know you were that old. Yeah, old as your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were raised moving around different places. My dad was a, a truck driver, um, and he came from, uh, I would say, a, a fairly long line of alcoholics. So my granddad was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. Was um, all my uncles were alcoholics, and <clears throat> it was it was kind of back in the day. Um, when it just seemed like everywhere that we went, <clears throat> that was just that was just commonplace, I guess. But um, our our my childhood was really crazy. And um, how so? There again, moving around different places. Yeah. Um, my 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 dad uh, abused my mom mm. uh, for many years, and um, we witnessed that, and just you know mm. just saw dad just being a bad place, and. Um, just you know, she would leave him from time to time, and and we were in a um, I don't know, just going from different place, and um, I, I think the uh, most of it I've kind of blocked out, and and you know only recently, uh, in the past few years, I guess, um, been able to kind of process a lot of that and think about a lot of those things um, that had happened. But um, how young were you when you when that stuff started happening? Oh, from you know as early as I can remember. So, um, but a lot of my and I, you know, people ask me sometimes to remember good, uh, try to remember a good time in my childhood, and, and it's really a struggle to. Um, there are times when I can remember my mom was really as solid as she could be at that point uh, in that situation, but um, most of my childhood was just chaotic, and um, the things I remember were not good. Mm. Why did you move around a lot? Like he, you said your dad was a truck driver, right? Yeah, um, I mean, part of it would be that um, you know, mom would have enough and, and leave mm. dad, and then so we would move somewhere else for a little while, and yeah. in the middle of the night, crazy, and, and like we were running away or whatever, and then mm. months later, dad would come get us and take us wherever he was, and then um, so. Um, Why do you think your mom like sort of? let it keep going or whatever to the extent that she did well you know knowing what I know now um, she didn't think very much of herself and it was Mm. kind of a a pattern of um, like in my family like with my uncles they would do the same thing my granddad was the same way and and, um, it just seemed to be that that the women would just take it um, Mm. partially I think they would probably use the, the partial excuses um Back in those days, you know, you just stayed no matter what, and, right. and uh, no matter what happened. And but, but obviously, like with mom, I know that um, she she didn't hold herself, and she had a crazy upbringing too. Her mm. her mom was an alcoholic, moved around a lot. Um, you know, her mom got married like six or seven or eight times, and mm. you know, so she was just kind of back and forth. And I think um, those patterns of to me, I, I just look back on it now, knowing. The patterns of dysfunction that we uh, allow, or, or we just uh, inherit, mm-hmm. we don't realize that we don't know how to cut them out. So we just adopt them, think it's okay, and just keep going. But um, mm-hmm. I think for me, and, and every time I think about this, um, the, the main thing for me, I think we were taught um, to keep everything quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, that was I think that was the biggest part of dysfunction. Looking back on it now. Um, that we were taught uh, everything that went wrong or went on bad we were not to you know not to speak about them not to tell yeah you don't you don't throw your dad under the bus or whatever right or or, or anybody in the family so it's like all all the family is okay and and Mm. seemingly okay but everything's crumbling and everything's falling apart but you wouldn't tell anybody that so Mm. um, there's nobody that you could 
confide in or anything like that. It just didn't happen. And then when the the other family members have a similar thing, similar situation, that kind of makes it the the new normal. What about uh, like adolescence and high school and all that stuff? Like, yeah, just tell me about that. Yeah, so I I think one of my a pivotal point in in my life was twelve years old. Um, is when we moved here, um, and and mom had just came back with dad um, for the f- first or second, third time. I don't know how that how many times, but um, then she left shortly after that, um, you know, to get away. And, and I stayed because I was in school here, and um, I was kind of began to be on my own, that kind of stuff. But. Um, the, the patterns that we saw, we I, my brother and I just kind of, you know, kept on. We we started drinking. I started drinking at 11 years old. Mm. Um, tried uh, marijuana and cocaine at 11 and 12, um, and and it just seemed like the things that that we were supposed to do. You know, it's like nope. I look back on it now, it's like crazy. I, it's like nobody was telling us not to do it. Mm. And and um, and at 12. Uh, was the first time I began having sex mm. and I look at it now there again 12 year olds are babies but mm. to me we had you know had to grow up so so fast I guess and saw so much uh, it just seemed like that was what we were supposed to do and mm. um, I think uh, I look back on it now and and I think about like alcohol was a big part of my life and uh, drugs running off but not a, a big part but I think the biggest probably the biggest uh Aspect of uh, the the dysfunction that we were raised in. I think sex was my biggest thing. Like with um, learning how to manipulate girls and 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 women to get what I needed or thought I needed um, began. That that probably began the the biggest uh, issue for me and pattern for me was um, mm. was that uh, finding my I guess self worth and 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 conquering sure uh, that. You said your mom moved away, so you lived with him. Yeah, well, I, I lived with... Um, so there was a, a period of time from 12 to 16. I think mom had come back for a, for a few years, and then um, I can remember at 16, um, I started driving. I, I got a, my first truck at 15. I started driving, you know, because I was kind of on my own. Right. Basically, I mean, mom was in and out, and dad was in and out, but um, at 16 years old, I was away at a, at a track meet, um state track meet I came home and mom had gone again and that was that was the last time so mm. um, I mean she had and, and she had her and my brother um, had moved and of course expected me to come there but I, I didn't for a while I stayed here and, and um, lived with aunts and a couple of different aunts and, and that kind of stuff but I was basically at that point by myself I mean so I what I did is just drove all over the place in my own vehicle and did my own thing and worked and went to school and uh, drank and had you know sex and parties and all that kind of stuff and uh, like like literally nobody was telling me not to do it <laughs> at least I didn't was it weird that, that your weird that your brother that you weren't with your brother anymore um somewhat I mean somewhat yeah it wasn't like we didn't have that kind of relationship I don't think right. then it was it was more combative I guess but. You know what we were raised in. I'm surprised that it was even half a quarter, but um, thank God we are now. But at the time, you know, it, it didn't bother me as, as much as mm. probably most people would. Most people would. What about college and that like season of life or whatever? Um, well, when I was 18, I got married mm. for the first time and um, had my daughter um, at 19. But I had moved to Atlanta then, um, and or McDonough, and started uh, in the electrical union. So I went. I didn't go to college first. I went to mm-hmm. um, tech school, you know, electrical right. trade school, um, JAT school for four years, and worked in Atlanta, you know, during that time. And um, and that marriage lasted for seven years, mm-hmm. um, and then ended up, you know, back down here uh, after that. What is being married like when you grow up the way that you grew up? Um, I, I thankfully I didn't have a tendency. I, I you know I saw um, 
abuse as not you know <laughs> I didn't carry that on right obviously carried on alcoholism and, and still carried on uh, promiscuous you know adultery stuff um, did that um, and just there again it just seemed to be I'm not making any excuses for what I did right. you know um, and of course the marriage wasn't good and it didn't last um, and you know my fault. <laughs> Means, uh, yeah. So, uh, what happened after that? What happened after you, that marriage? Um, disbanded. Stayed single for a few years, and then um, got married to my wife now, um, Jennifer. For we've been married twenty four and a half years now. Mm. Um, and and we we started off backwards and and not knowing. Still not knowing the Lord and, and not, you know, I, I always said that, um, I said the sinner's prayer at seven, but I live like hell till I met him, you know, it's yeah. like, so, you know, to me, um, I, I'm sure I took out some kind of, uh, called fire insurance at that point, <laughs> because that's what they were telling me to do, but right. um, I didn't meet the Lord until I was 33, hmm. and uh and he began to change my life and change my outlook on a lot of things. So, what was that? Uh, I was just about to ask you that, but what was that experience? The experience of becoming a believer. And that that experience was I was here, um, and it was after I I had um, gone out of town to work. We worked in Chicago and different places up north doing some electrical stuff. And um, while I was away, my uh, my responsibility. It, you know, began became less and less, and so I started doing other things. You know, the things I could do up there, and um, and and almost didn't come home. So yeah. this is um, eighteen years ago, seventeen years ago now, and yeah. um, and and I and I I had at that point I had a son, you know, and, and Jennifer, whom I loved very much, as much as I possibly knew how to, and uh, didn't want to lose that, but. At the same time, I was just kind of getting further and further away. And um, strangely enough, at that point, um, when I was away, I, f- I found out that I could sing, you know, through the wrong way. And um, so it was uh, the March of, no, February of 2000. Also, how do you? What do you mean you found out you could sing? <laughs> well, I had no You're idea. Like thirty years old. I could, yeah, I was. I was yeah. I was, I, well, I could. I didn't. I didn't know I could sing. I had no idea. Right. <laughs> I knew that noise was gonna happen. Yeah, I it's some, that It just doesn't happen very often. It's some uh, AC unit thing. It's a pump. I, I <coughs> anyway, so before that, I had no idea right. that, that I could. And of course, we started out in bars and stuff and just yeah think you know overnight karaoke whatever and and people like man you can really sing i like really you know it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know whatever but um so i i was singing with blues bands before i came back home i mean just right. in a short period of time so it was it was like a kind of an awakening kind of thing in in the wrong setting but um and obviously there's all this um attention and sort of social currency that goes with that Yes, and that, that played a big part in um, me almost, you know, mm. losing my family. Again. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, I'm talking to my wife on the phone um, and standing in like two foot of snow, and she said, don't you think it's time to come home? And and I heard something different. And, you know, I heard her, something different in her voice, and I said, okay. <laughs> so I came home. and, and What was uh, different? Well, I, you know, I mean, sometimes she would say, you know, you've been gone long enough. Yeah. But this time it was different. It was almost <laughs> like a, hey, this is the last time we're going to bring this up. You know? <laughs> it was like an unspoken ultimatum or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, well, and, and it may not have even been that way for right. her, but for me it was that. And, and I look back on it now and, and realize it was probably, you know, the Lord going, hey, man, you're just about to, hmm. you're just about to lose it again. And, um, so... I came home that year. Um, it was re- it was kind of rocky, and I was still going around here doing some stuff and um, singing and stuff like that. Still mm-hmm. trying to keep that going, you know, whatever. And, and my it's like wife, it's kind of like a drug. Like when people validate you in that way, it's like whoa, this oh, is something. Yes, and for me, 
that was you know that's what I needed you know I, I thought anyway yeah um, and it was just a whole different level but mm-hmm. anyway thankfully my wife was just continuing to give me space and just saying okay I'm you know I'm here you know whatever and I was just like okay cool and um, and so in October of that well started going to church a little bit like my wife had been going to church while I was away and right up here and um her her family church and uh there was some kind of weird revival going on during that time there um god was really doing some work in there but anyway so she got me i started going to church a little bit you know here and there and um they said oh you can sing and i was like yeah i can sing you know (laughs) and so you should join the choir i'm like yeah i could do that And, (laughs) and so uh i began doing that and that was the way that god kind of worked um you know, worked in me to, to find out who he was. But um, So I, there was this preacher up there who was a retired Assemblies of God pastor, and he was preaching every Sunday, you got to get off the fence. He said he wasn't, but every week I heard, you got to get off the fence. Get, get on one side or get on the other, but get off the fence. Mm. And um, so in October of 2000, I was in my, in my living room by myself, and, and I'm walking through, and I literally fell on the floor face down. And, I, and immediately I knew it was God. I mean, it was there was no question. It wasn't a religious thing. It was like I met God, like, and and I just immediately said, "Whatever you want, God, you can have." I, I, I surrendered to you. Um, I, you know, I, I just recognized it was Him. And, um, so at that point, everything seemed to change. It wasn't like it was a little thing. It was like everything was different, mm. and. Um, I, and I knew that because I began to, my heart began to change. Like um, I remember vividly, like a week later, watching a guy on TV who was a, um, a child molester and murderer and rapist, and mm. he was on death row. And I began to to cry for the guy, mm. and he's to make the worst the worst kind of guy in society. Mm. And I, I realized, you know, that God was saying, "I have grace for him and forgiveness for him," and, and so can you. And I did, and and so I realized that that was just. My heart was changed. It was totally different. And um, mm. I'd like to say from that point it's been perfect, but... Yeah, just what struggles didn't change during that time? Well, immediately, like, I, I so I'm 17 years clean of alcohol and drugs, so I've never, from that point on, I've never had any desire for that. And, mm. and I always looked at it and still look at it like, um, like I allow God to come into my living room and hang out, you know, and... and and he cleaned it up for me, you know. He, he just so in in to me in, in parts of my life and and uh, and, and parts of my heart, I, I allowed him in the big area, you know, because that was a, that was safe enough. And then mm. eventually he'd go, you know, I'd really like to go in into the bedroom. And so and I know it's a, it's a crazy analogy, but I yeah. really get a good understanding of it. I think somebody shared it with me years ago, but um, so I I would trust begin to trust him enough. And realize that he really does forgive me and really does have grace for me, mm-hmm. much more though, so than I can understand. And then, when I began to trust him a little more, I led him into a, the next like area, the the, the bedroom. And then mm-hmm. there's a there's a closet area, and he says, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'd really like to go in there and help you with that, you know. And um, so I, I I led him into so many places, but I still think there's always an area that we're unwilling to let God go, and, and I don't know. You know, it, maybe it's a small thing, maybe it's a big thing, or maybe it's one of those things that I locked away, you know, in my childhood. Um, but I, 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 had, I was in a religious place where I thought for a long time, for years, that I had allowed God in every area of my life. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, I had, like, it's been over just over 10 years ago now that um, I was in full-time ministry and um, doing my thing, thinking um, that I was, I had it all together, and and um, had another just big episode where I didn't allow God to come into the place um, where I had, you know, learned to use women to mm-hmm. get what I needed, and mm-hmm. um, so that was another big, big area where um, it almost cost me everything because I didn't allow, I didn't, tr- I didn't trust Him enough to allow Him to deal with that that area of my life and um so you had had like an affair or something you're being very vague and i want you to be very specific yeah i wanted to be very vague 
I don't. I just don't. I can't stand it. Just, <laughs> if people are gonna know what you're meaning, then just say what you're meaning. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> I did have an affair, and um, it was more of began more of the heart, and that was something I'd never dealt with before. As much as, and and I look back on it now and go, as much as I thought that I knew what love was, mm-hmm. I had no idea. And, and I, I still don't know a lot of things about it, but um, I thought that I loved God, and I thought that I understood His love for me, and I thought that I loved my wife, and I thought I loved my kids, and I thought I could have an under, I had an understanding of what love was because of what you know the Bible was telling me and what all those things that I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I began to open my heart um, to someone other than my wife. Mm. And um, it was little by little. Yeah. And um, and I really just, I, I had no flags for that. Right. Like I had put up every barrier there was for sex because I knew right. Right. that I wasn't going to do that. Right. But I put up no barriers for a heart issue. For intimacy. Intimacy. Yeah. That's that's it. Um, and, and so bringing that up, I, I began to get, intimate right with even in small else. ways yeah. in small ways and I had no I literally did not know right I mean everybody said well you, you made the choice yeah choices um, there were times when I would make choices a lot of times it was just I just right. shared my life I guess and, yeah um, began began deeper and deeper and, and so yeah. I almost it, knowing God like knowing him not having a religious experience but knowing him yeah um and, and knowing the word and knowing those things, I still almost completely lost everything. What was your, um, I feel like I'm drilling you harder because I actually know you. <laughs> yeah, right. The more you I'm, know someone, the more you I'm the... okay with it. I, I'd rather you ask me the question, so I'll, I'll answer because I, I probably won't. The other thing is, um, why am I taking the headphones off? Like, the reason I want to be specific and, and not gloss over things is... If we are vague here, the underlying belief under that is that honesty is like a place you rarely go. Or it's just like, hmm, it's like, um, it makes honesty the exception. Whereas the whole point of this is that, like, saying everything, it should, is, I want to make that the norm. So that, um, people that are fake, that they are, they're the, they're the person who's just not, um, comfortable yet and I realized that or whatever that like the more um, open you can be about it the less power it has kind of you know what I mean yeah. and um, not only that but I also this is also based on the assumption this is the whole reason I'm doing it really is that when you're in church a lot of times um, I just feel like I'm lecturing now when you're in church a lot of times every once in a while the pastor will say something real honest and it'll give you this look like wow can you believe I did that mm. And meanwhile, you're in your head, in my head. I'm going like, this is where I live. The rest of what you're saying, I don't identify with this. Right. This one really raw bit. That's mm-hmm. where my mind is all the time. Right. So thank you for uh, coming down to my level or up to my level or whatever. But like, don't act like this is a thing that I'm surprised by. Mm-hmm. This is where I live. Yeah, because I feel like even when people are polite in what they say, their mind is still in a really uh, kind of raw area. And just the whole thing of of struggling with affairs and all that, like that's super common, you know. It's not um, this is why this is going to help so many people is because so many people have walked through those shoes, mm-hmm. and so many people have almost lost everything. So many people have lost everything, and uh, and it's really going to encourage people because of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you already know all that. That's why you agreed to do it, but. Um, yeah, I don't want to make honesty be this like touchy thing, you know. Um, I'd rather be too honest and then say, okay, edit out this one person's name or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, because I want to, you know, set the standard as um, it's all good here. You know, that's what's so cool about CR or whatever. Like, the first time I shared stuff that I never shared everyone else, 30 seconds later, another guy was talking and no one cared about anything <laughs> right. I had just right. said. And I was like, I can't believe I said that and they're all just like bored by the next guy and I'm just like I like this this is totally different
Because they like tell you in small group, you don't even have to listen to the guy. It's like, just let him share. You don't have to yeah. try to fix him. It's like, oh my God. I'm so used to like yeah. listening intently to go, let me help Well, you. okay. But have you ever shared honestly in the church setting and then everyone just like, everyone jumps on you like Probably telling you what you need to do and everything. You're like, this is... Sorry, uh, I'll shut up. That's why we'll I quit doing this. that in church. Yeah, this, yeah, and uh, another premise of, of what I want to do with this is that is the underlying idea that people already know what they should do. Just everyone already knows mm-hmm. when they're doing something wrong. They have, they just already know. They just don't know why. Yeah, you know. <laughs> all right, I'll edit all that out. But um, I don't know why I said any of you. No, I like that. I'm, I'm, I needed that. <laughs> I probably needed that before in the beginning. I, we should have prayed before we started. Too. I don't know. Why all right. I just, uh, I was just like, well, the thing's set up. Um, yeah, so, um, trying to figure out where to go from here. Um, you talked about... I would like to yeah. get to the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, I guess how do you feel like your view of love for a spouse or just love in general has changed? You talked about that it is, that it has changed, but, uh, what do you think started that in, um, how is it different now from back then? I'll tell you the culmination of that. So so I was actually gone from home for four months mm. uh, during that time. And um, it was a literal, like, hell for me. I mean, I, I've, mm. I've never had a time, like, like my childhood was bad, but this time mm. it was like I, I was so alone and so, like, like unnecessary. It was almost, it was crazy. And, um, and when, when was this? Over ten years ago, right? Um, and you were you were gone for work? Uh huh. You were gone somewhere for work? No. Oh, okay. I was just not at home. Right. Yeah, I was not at home. I was away from home for four. Oh, months. I see. What you mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was didn't like, know, you just I had didn't know where to go, right? Yeah. yeah, I had left. I mean, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but during that time, I would, I would see my wife occasionally, and. And she would just go, it's not too late. It's not too late to fix us. And, and my only response to her was like, like I, I didn't lie to her about it. I told her everything. And every time I was talking, I, 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 it's, it's too late. I'm gone. I, my heart is checked out. I checked my heart over here. It's like I didn't realize I had it, but now I do, and it's over here. I don't know how to get it back, you know. And she would just say, it's not too late. And, um, and, I, was get, and I had so many pastors around me. And every single one of them was saying, "You shouldn't do this, and you should do that, and this is you got to stop doing this." And I knew all that, like you said, you know when you're doing wrong, and you know how to fix it, right? Or you almost you kind of know how to fix it, but you know what not to do at least. Yeah. But there was one, and and he's my pastor now, mm-hmm. and um, Pastor Mike, and I would go to him, and and he wouldn't say any of that. He would say, "Look." I've been talking to the Lord about you, and this is what he said. Mm. And it would be this, like, it would only be like a line or something, but it would be this crazy thing that would just, like, pierce my heart. I can remember he said, "Um, I want you to really look at at Corinthians 13 and and see what love really is. Mm. And I would look at it, and I would like, okay, this love is patient. This is love is patient. This love is not patient. This love is kind and gentle and gracious, and this is not. And and that began to change my heart. Like, oh my God, love is over here. You know, love is not where I'm at. Love is is right there in my wife. And and, and it the during that time, um, God began to really reach my wife at that time because she was really, you know, seeking Him. And um, and I believe that's when she had her moment. You know, with God, like her encounter, like true encounter, and so, she, so she was not listening to anybody else's advice except God's, and she was saying, she was just giving me grace. She was showing me what love really was, and so I attribute understanding what love is because of what God was saying to my wife and through Pastor Mike, and 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 I actually heard it, and and I began to understand. What real love was, mm. and so one day, I just came home, mm. and and it was to my wife. It was like I never left, and it was like 
how can you be this way? I don't even, so it, it's taking me like 10 years of beginning to understand that. And um, so I began to understand, even though I thought I knew what grace was, I began to understand what grace was because my wife was showing it to me. Mm. And, and the people who really knew the Lord and really cared about me was showing me love mm. and grace. Now, religious folks were not. Most right. of the people in church were not. They were just condemning, and 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 so I have a I don't know if you want to share this, but I have a distaste for religious stuff. Every time I see it, I run. You know, it's just like I can't I can't deal with it because I know it's so fake. And um, well, here are my thoughts on that. In <clears throat> that attitude is kind of the attitude they had towards you, where um, those people that are judgmental right off the bat, like. Yeah. Let's get in their head. Like, yeah. let's see behind that. Like, they're just scared of some. Mm-hmm. They're scared of answering some question, right? And or they're, um, or they have two. They probably have like two versions of them. Like the one that they, the one that they know, uh, that's like the by the book them, and then the like real them, and they don't know how to marry those two things. Right. And that's then so and then so when they see. Usually, when someone is judgmental, it's because you know they're they're just not honest with their own life at all. Yeah. So, like, um, that always goes together. Like, like you said, like if someone is really um, on the up and up internally and really doing good, uh, that person is probably not going to throw you under the bus. Mm-hmm. But the person who does throw you under the bus, like they're really struggling and. Um, they're very internally judgmental mm-hmm. as well, yeah, and um, mm-hmm. and they. I I tend to think people give what they have, and so they don't have, they don't give grace because they don't have, have it, it. and um, they genuinely I think at the heart of all that just because I've lived that way so many years, at the heart of all that they uh, they just don't really know if God loves them. Hmm. And uh, they know they say they know they're supposed to say that he does, uh, but they don't know that he does. Right. And not throwing them under the bus for that either. Right. Um, that's an extremely natural uh, thing to feel when enough things go wrong. You know, I I tend to think that people have a few moments that go really wrong. And they live every day as a reaction to those few tragedies that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And they live in the pain of those few things every single day uh, of some kind of guilt, some kind of weight. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when someone is is judgmental, they <clears throat> seems like they're raising the standard so that you don't meet it. But they're really lowering the standard so that they do meet it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, truth by definition um, doesn't bend for anyone, including them, regardless of position. And so they're just dishonest enough that their sin is cool, but yours is gross. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at the heart of that, I don't think it's that they're trying to pull one over on God. At, at the end of the day, they just <clears throat> think maybe he hates them. Mm. Um. How do you think the way that you grew up in the um, what was normal then? How do you think that um, affects your daily life now? Like, obviously, your your daily life now is so much sweeter, and uh, you know you have a house and a business and wonderful family and everything. But um, to what extent do you still fight these sort of foundational things that came from? the way you grew up I, I think um, you know the Lord bringing me through so many things to over he's he you know brought me to a place of overcoming those issues um, I really today it seems the biggest battle is is helping other people see what dysfunction is like it's 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 kind of easy for me to, to see it being from having seen it and been through it to now knowing what it is and not and not allowing it, hmm. um, it 
I think one of the biggest issues now for me is is to see like other people that are close to me dealing with some of the same dysfunctions and um, and being able to help you know call that what it is because I there again we we just adopt and and inherit dysfunction yeah. as family units and we let things happen that are so dysfunctional and we don't even realize it um, now it just seems like it's easy to see so mm. I'm, I'm I am thankful for a lot of that um, so a lot of it is um, just doing what you can to help people out of of an unhealthy thing that yeah especially um, at a young age yeah, yeah. hmm um, I feel like do you ever think um, I think it's very normal for people to <laughs> it's very normal for or I'll speak for me just because this is a thing that I dealt with for a long time but sometimes a really something really big would happen in my life and I would just tell myself over and over like it doesn't matter, like, just ignore it, it doesn't matter. When I look, and when I would look around to the people around me, I could tell it didn't matter to them, but it was, like, a tragedy for me. Mm-hmm. But since it didn't matter to anyone else, I just figured, like, society is telling me that this doesn't matter. <laughs> because, um, just, for me, it would be, like, um, and I, for me, it was, it was, like, breakups and stuff, where I could tell that my brother wasn't bothered by it, my parents weren't bothered by it, but, like, it was really, um, it was just really like damaging me because um, when you are really open with someone and then they reject you, you just feel like, I, I always had this feeling like they saw everything that I was and something about it told them, this is not enough, this is it's fine, but it's just not enough. It's not what I want. It's not what I need. It's not enough of something. And so that kind of uh, rejection hits deep, and or did for me, mm-hmm. and because um, for whatever reason. But again, like if you were to talk to any other person about that, like it's at best like it's kind of a joke or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I totally get where they're coming from. Like, of course they. You know, of course, it doesn't bother them the way it does me, mm-hmm. and um, I totally understand that they would just want something to be turned into something funny, uh, if possible. I I do that as well. So I get where they're coming from. I don't feel their pain either. Um, you know, when that person has a breakup, it doesn't hit me hard at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, so I would just live with this like limp, basically internally where I would just live with this unspoken shame and guilt and stuff because I just felt like I was carrying around that rejection and and that, you know, that happens a few times and then you just feel like it, I would feel like it's starting to rewrite um, the core, like, you know, a few people in a row tell you something or imply something negative. I just would start to feel like, all right, even if everyone says nice things about me, this is what they really think. Mm-hmm. And just would carry that around with me. And um, those are sort of the building blocks of what led to um, when I um, have dealt with depression and stuff. And that depression is what led to um, a level of honesty with God that brought um, a lot of clarity and brought a lot of goodness um, was that the pain of isolation brought um, honesty that nothing else did and through that honesty with God like because I don't I, I can't remember if we got to this when you were a kid but I very much did grow up in church so I was really accustomed to that environment and um, just accustomed to what those type of people say and what those type of people do mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good that came out of that that wasn't a purely bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, had a wonderful uh, upbringing for the most part because of those principles. Mm-hmm. But um, but it also built uh, sort of an understanding of God that wasn't personal at all. And uh, 
and you weren't allowed to say that, you weren't allowed to doubt that or whatever, you just weren't allowed to touch that. That was the mm-hmm. thing that, you know, you don't go there. And so I was just essentially walking around with a, the assumption that maybe God didn't care whether I lived or died, otherwise why do I feel like this? And then, you know, kind of not talking about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but... I, I came to a place where I was in so much like personal pain that I didn't care about anything <laughs> anymore at all. Mm-hmm. I just didn't care. I really cried out to God, and, and I, I've mentioned this countless times on the podcast, but as I started to feel like I was becoming suicidal was the first time I was ever really honest with God um, because I didn't care about any of the image anymore because it was way... It just... It was way too painful to to keep that up, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a level of desperation I didn't know before that. And life has never uh, gone back to the way it was before that. It's always been a sweeter thing since then. Um, is someone coming down the stairs? Oh, they're just walking. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, all that. So when I hear someone that is dealing with um, being suicidal or depression or whatever, mm-hmm. one of my thoughts is. Yeah, that's kind of normal for someone who's really honest because they're evaluating why they're alive. And then, uh, too, like, you know, it doesn't have to scare you anymore, you know? Like, I I don't know. This is what you're saying about the stuff that you grew up in, that it's now very straightforward for me to speak to someone who's in that place mm-hmm. um, and just say, like, you know, maybe if maybe on the surface everything's fine, but the big, like foundational things about why you're alive you don't those aren't in place mm-hmm. and so um it's gonna eventually seem like nothing of the other stuff matters mm-hmm. um because it doesn't and uh you know we just are stay distracted enough by the little things that we don't ask the big questions because a secular world has no answers for the big questions right. um you know it's just like a really detailed map but no destination nowhere to actually go um, with life and so you know you just the ideal life for the secular world is to just have a lot of sex and drink a lot and just have a lot of fun and try to not think about mm-hmm. the fact that you're going to die or that you um, or that nothing has meaning mm-hmm. and that there's just this underlying sort of nihilism that atheism has no answer for um, but we're too cool for God now so um, this is all we have. And uh, anyway, one of the when I had that moment with God, it was the first time that my life was all of my life was a very small piece of the puzzle, and um, there's a lot of weight lifted off me once I realized that the things that give uh, life meaning and the thing and the compassion that God has for humans has nothing to do with me personally and it will continue with or without me mm. and the experience uh, the best version of life is me just being a part of that mm. but that goes on either way and uh, and that was just a totally sort of reconfiguration uh, of uh, my relationship to God and it also brought in a, a, a relationship uh, with God where my identity was separate from my actions and um, you know um, with all humans those are the same Mm -hmm. including the ones you're close to like people just see what you do and who you are and there's no difference because they just don't have time for anything else Mm -hmm. you know if someone's mean to you a couple times you go oh I know that guy he's mean Mm -hmm. if he's nice you go oh I know that guy he's nice Um, those things are completely married and uh, there's no human representation of, uh, of the way that God sees us and the separation between uh, actions and and uh, who you are in your identity, you know, except for maybe uh, maybe if you're a parent, you kind of see that with your kids that maybe there's um, a little correlation there where you really really love your kid, uh, sort of regardless. And I don't know, never been a parent, but I'm sure that does clarify that a little bit. Um, and that you have this very strong connection to them, regardless of actions. Yeah, it's uh, not it's not performance based. When you begin to understand that, I'm proud of 
my children regardless of what they do and I love them you know so I do there's a closer correlation Mm. I think what you were saying about um, you know about internalizing things and I think about like I think about with Preston he grew up in a totally different world than I did and and he seems to have it all together but I know you know just like you said you were internalizing things that were damaging to you and that was huge to you it may be super small to me because of my life but I know that Preston I mean because I believe that that internalizing and keeping things in part of that dysfunction thing that Satan wants you to do that that's his playground he wants us all to have that something going on inside that we don't that we just internalize and we don't you know release and you know confess and 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 learn to you know allow God to help us with um it just makes it bigger and bigger for us but I think everybody is just it's just relative to what the person's been going through mm. and I, so I think people always deal with stuff you know um just when we learn to to get that out and and, and to allow God to come into that little recess of our heart to help us with it. What are things that you, like what are small sort of things that you do now to um, make your normal healthy and to make the normal for your household um, a good place? I I think like you mentioned going to church um, and a lot of people say I can go to church or not go to church that kind of thing and I look back on it now learned a lot from your dad well, I used to hear, he always says, I mean, going to church like makes a difference. And I didn't believe it till just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been going to church and, and Bible studies and celebrate recoveries and, and praise and worship stuff, just being involved in that um, long enough now to look back and know that it actually has made a difference. Like, yeah. when you hear, like, for me, if I'm sitting in a place where they're they're teaching grace and I'm hearing the word and I'm hearing, you know, love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and um, you know those things I continue to hear them I actually makes a difference in my life mm. and and I don't want it just to make a difference in my life I want my family to be different so I can remember years ago hearing that the power of life and death is in the tongue and it actually matters what you say mm. and I heard that in church you know right and and so it began to a pattern in our house to make where we don't tear people down you know Mm. we build people up you know so simple things like that begin to change the family and the and the love we have for each other and and how we feel about each other and one another it changes little by little and after a period of time it's like i look back on it now and go i've learned so much and actually have applied it like what the word what the word just by being around it just by being around it right and and so i look now and there again it's 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 always a process but it has made a tremendous difference. The word has, the truth has, the church has. You know, um, the study of of who God is, the knowing who God is, and um, has actually made a tremendous difference in in our family, little by little by little. Yeah. And, and now it's like I look on it now. It's like wow. It, There's it so many positive works. aspects of church. One that it's kind of a pep rally in a way, um, and it just has a ton of meaning in that regard. The other thing is, I listened to someone the other day, and this really hit home with me, just with someone who has my personality type and struggles with the things that I do. He talked about, um, Dennis Prager was talking about how important it is to never get to a point where you don't have heroes, where you don't have mm-hmm. people that are um, that you respect, and where you don't have, where you're just so kind of... Uh, self-obsessed or whatever where there's no one above you no one farther down the road or whatever mm-hmm. and um, that's just really big like I'm I've been thinking about that recently too as going to church like um, just regardless of where I'm going uh, I'm there to say I am not too good to be under someone mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's just a thing that I wrestle with as a self-obsessed egomaniac that uh <laughs> that i'm not like loud arrogant i'm like quiet arrogant mm-hmm. uh loud arrogant is uh is the better one of the two it's the least annoying one because you go oh yeah i get that guy he likes his big truck or whatever right, right. but uh but quiet arrogant that's like the the smug one that's the it's like the kind of evil one mm-hmm. um <laughs> maybe they both are mm-hmm. um 
Yes, it, a lot of this is personality type, but mm-hmm. yeah, but I don't want to get. I don't want to get to a place where uh, I'm so immature that I don't listen to anyone because mm-hmm. I'm so internally awesome that uh, no one else matters anymore. Right. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's really big, but it's also really big just to think that just the proximity of, uh, of church is, uh, is a really wonderful thing. And um, I see, I value goodness a lot mm-hmm. um, and put a lot of um, just put a lot of tr- value on that now you know um, even more than fun or whatever that mm-hmm. what is genuinely good you know mm-hmm. and church gets a kind of reputation of being phony or whatever because sometimes it is but uh, the best version of church is saying this is not some place where we tell you, hey, don't do all that stuff that the world has. Um, this is a place where we go, we all know about all that stuff, and if you want that, you can go get that. Mm-hmm. But this is a place where we protect against that because we want to um, foster goodness, we want mm-hmm. to foster um, kindness, and we want to uh, put honor above impulse and mm-hmm. really go against the grain of uh, the sort of selfish side of humanity and any kind of evil you want to participate in it'll be there if you want it um, but this is a thing that we see value in protecting mm-hmm, that's good. Um, thoughts to someone who is in the middle of either a dysfunctional family or you know a breakdown of the family because of an affair or just someone in right in the middle of that kind of thing like um, just what do you say to that Christian is in the in the really chaotic part. I, I would say this, and I say this quite often to people um, who are who deal with stuff the same similar stuff that I dealt with. It is never too late. It is just because you think you've gone too far for 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 God to change your your life um, because you think you've done too much, or um, it's just been uh, you're, you're too far away from. Whatever it is, whether it's restoration um, from your with your family, or or redemption from something that you're doing um, now, it is not too late. It's it you're as you're as close to um, recovery and as close to uh, healing and and as close to God as you want to be. Like you can turn instantly and be back there. You can mm-hmm. turn instantly and allow God to begin to restore you and begin to heal you and um, I, I, I think about dysfunction keeping those things in that um, that is the place where the devil just loves to be mm. and and the only way to, to take his ammo away is to get it out to find somebody and confess it let it go um, that that the word actually says that brings about healing so mm. uh, you're, it's not too late Thank you so much for your time and uh and for your openness and uh we will see you guys later